And we want to continue our study this morning in the series. This should be a movie. And we're going to do so by turning to Joshua chapter 5 and uh, verse 13. And one of the things I love about this story is it illustrates for us in our mind as if we need help, and sometimes we do, the, the great divide between our weakness and God's strength. And you know that that truth is true of you every single moment of every single day, whether or not you realize it or whether or not I realize it or not. We, we are weak, but God is strong. We are needy, uh, of the resources that God provides. And, and so this is a great story to show us that. And before we get into chapter 5, I want to do just kind of a brief historical run-up to chapter <clears throat> five thirteen to really set the groundwork for this concept of, of God's strength in our weakness. And, you know, one of the things that we know about this time in history when we get to our section in Joshua, is that the nation of Israel has been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years due to their unbelief. And this generation uh, has died out in the wilderness, including Moses. And as a result, Joshua was now appointed and primed to lead the nation of Israel into the promised land to conduct the the conquest that God wanted to accomplish some 40 years earlier. Uh, but the, the people had, had not believed God. They, they saw the giants. They saw the fortified cities, which probably one of those cities they saw was Jericho. That, that completely uh, caused them to respond with fear and, uh, and realize their weakness. But remember, by the time we get to the story this morning, Joshua had sent in two spies who had lodged at the house of Rahab. Lodge stayed a couple of hours probably before they were let down out of the city and they had brought forward uh, to him a good report. And so this encouraged Joshua and it encouraged the people that the Lord had indeed given them the land. And so we see as we move through Joshua and Joshua 3 that, that God had allowed the entire nation, probably numbering in the millions at this point, to cross over the Jordan River on dry ground, which was a miracle in and of itself because we learn in, in Joshua 3 that the Jordan River was at flood stage. And so he, he splits the river. They go through like dry ground. This, this should have, at least in their history, hearkened them back to 40 years earlier when he had split the Red Sea, that God was doing something miraculous to bring them into the land. In fact, we see later in Joshua 5.1 that God also used this very event, splitting the Jordan allowing them to come through dry ground to even further demoralize the Canaanites. We, we get from Joshua 5.1 that when all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up by the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, that their heart melted and there was no spirit in any uh, in them any longer because of the children of Israel. And so God was doing a work. He was preparing even their enemies to be ready to be defeated. He had planted in their minds that he was an all-powerful God who was with this nation. And so we see this as we build up to our story this morning. The other thing we see is in Joshua 4, God instructed the Israelites through Joshua to gather 12 memorial stones out of the middle of the Jordan River so that when they got through, they had these stones and they could remind future generations of God's faithfulness. You know, oftentimes that's part of our problem is we, we oftentimes forget the very things that God 
has done to, to show himself faithful either in our lives, in our family's lives. And so we forget about that in the present. And oftentimes God's word is, is an encouragement. Just remember, don't forget. Just keep remembering what God has done uh, to show himself faithful. And this is one of those things for the nation. And so they took these stones out of the river. And so now they, they've crossed the Jordan River. They're, they're kind of in the plains of Jericho. You might say the suburbs of Jericho, right on the other side of the Jordan River. And so they're ready to go in and take the city now, right? Well, interesting. We have a little bit of a pause in chapter five before we get to our section. And in fact, we're going to see that three things happen once they cross the Jordan River. And this uh, just should blow us away. Uh, some of these things that they do do not make sense. In fact, the very first thing itself is they get across the Jordan River and Joshua, through God's instructions, has every male in Israel circumcised. Now, one of the things we learn about circumcision is, is obviously it was designed to be uh, enacted on a baby boy in the Old Testament on the eighth day after their birth. And, and so babies recovered more quickly from circumcision than adult males do. In fact, we learn uh, in other stories in the Bible that when grown men were circumcised, they became extremely weak, extremely vulnerable. They couldn't protect themselves. Now, now why had God brought them over the Jordan River and then circumcised? And why not uh, use the Jordan River as a boundary, as a safeguard, and maybe circumcise them on the other side of the river? Well, I think one of the reasons is God wanted to show them, hey, even in your weakest state, I'll protect you. Even in your weakest state, I'll take care of you. And so he brings them on the other side of the Jordan River, and, um, and they are in their weakest and most vulnerable state right there and in sight of the city of Jericho. The second thing we see, very interesting, we see this in verses 11 and 12. The very day, the very day that they camped on the west side of the Jordan River in the quote-unquote promised land, the manna ceased from coming. The, The manna that he had provided faithfully day by day by day, it ceased from coming. Why? Because they could now eat of the fruit of the promised land. And see, God was transitioning their thinking. He was showing them through visual aids. You know what, guys? This is a new day. This is a, this is a new opportunity for the nation. I'm gonna provide for you the very thing that I promised to you through this land, the fruit, the benefits, the blessings of it. It is yours starting today. And so he does that on the other side of the Jordan. And then third, we see that they observe the Passover while in the plains of Jericho, while in the suburbs of Jericho, they stop and worship the Lord. They remember the Lord's deliverance from them, uh, of them from the nation of Egypt. That, that last night in Egypt when they, when they left as millionaires because the Egyptians just emptied their coffers on them full of blessings as they left the nation. And as God just continued to protect and provide for them, this was a time to go back and remember how God had delivered them from the most powerful empire on on planet earth at the time and to remind them again about what he's going to do for them in this promised land. And so, you know, as we get to chapter five, verse 13, it says, and it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted his eyes and looked and behold, a man stood opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us? or for our adversaries. And so he said, no, 
but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Then the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. And so as any good general you, you might expect, Joshua was, was probably viewing the city of Jericho and maybe thinking through how they might attack. You know, he's, he's waiting on the Lord, but at the same time, he, he's been through a lot of battles by this time in his life. And he's, he's sitting there, maybe looking um, and deciding how they were going to approach taking this city. And, 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 you know, his army, as you recall, is still recovering from circumcision. Uh, their weakness here is going to be contrasted by God's strength. This, this uh, episode, this event in Joshua's life is going to change uh, his thinking forever. And they are going to see uh, visibly God coming in to save the day and deliver them in this battle. And so we're going to see this contrast go uh, on and on. And, you know, one of the things that we've got to understand about Jericho is not only was it the first town or the first city that they came to after crossing the Jordan River, the, the first city they were going to conquer in the promised land, but it was also probably the strongest town in Canaan. It was uh, the key to the conquest of the whole land. If you could get through Jericho, you, you might say everything else was downhill from there because Jericho was the, the most fortified city in probably all of the ancient world. And if not all of the ancient world, at least in the land of Canaan, it was the most fortified city. And so what God is gonna do is he's gonna take them to the most difficult situation and he's gonna do it in such a way that, that only he could get the credit for it. Because if he gets the credit for it, everything else, it looks like a piece of cake compared to Jericho. And as Joshua is sitting there, he, he, he's thinking through and and it says that as he came to pass, Joshua was by Jericho. And again, they were camping in the, the foothills, so to speak, or the plains of Jericho. And, and Joshua is a seasoned warrior. He's probably sitting there again, planning and strategizing. You know, one of the things that uh, he, he probably had never experienced before, though, was an attack on a fortified city like Jericho. And so you can kind of see, you know, what, what would he do? Um, you know, typically when you attacked a fortified city, you, you had what they would call different kind of armaments. It, but Israel didn't have siege engines. They didn't have battering ramps. They didn't have catapults. They didn't even have ladders or moving towers to, to help protect the men as they went over the wall. They had none of those things. They had slings, arrows, and spears. And they were no match for this city. And so you can picture all of this rumbling through Joshua's head. And, and as he's thinking about this, he, he stands up, he lifts his eyes, and he sees a man. And, and it's just incredible, this, this story, because this must have just shocked Joshua to no end. He, he turns around, he sees a man, and not only does he see a man, but the guy's got his sword out in almost an attack position. He's, he's ready for battle. You can imagine that just kind of startling Joshua. This guy had um, had got the drop on him, so to speak. Hadn't heard him coming. You know, he turns around and he's there and he's wondering who this is. And so it's startling for Joshua. And notice a couple things about the exchange. First of all, he doesn't ask who this man is. He, he cuts right to the chase. Hey, are you for us or against us? Like, I need to know, am I pulling my sword out now? 
or are we going to talk? And, and, and he really, I mean, he's in a dicey situation, at least in terms of his thinking. And here's the other ironic thing about this is when you look at the man's response, he doesn't even answer Joshua's question. This is what I think makes his answer so priceless. In fact, let's read it again. Uh, Joshua says, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he just says, no. <laughs> that's, that's basically his answer. Not, not well, I'm, no, no, Josh, relax. I'm with you. He doesn't say that. He just says, no. And then he goes on to say, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. And, you know, it's almost like he said, you know, Joshua, um, I'm not for you or against you. I'm here to take over. That, that's basically what he said. You know, Joshua, I, I'm not joining your team. You're joining my team. I'm not in your army. You're in my army. I don't work for you, Joshua. You work for me. And you can just see how this man just comes in with that statement. I'm not here for you. I'm not here for them. I'm here to take over. I am the commander of the Lord's army. And specifically, he says exactly that. I am the ruler of the army of Yahweh. And again, remember anytime you see the Lord, the word Lord in the Old Testament, it's all capital. It's, it's, it's translating the, the Hebrew word Yahweh, that covenant keeping name of God that the Israelites, uh, that were special to the Israelites. That meant something to them. And he says, I'm the ruler of that army. He's basically saying, Joshua, the very, the very God that called Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I am the commander of his army. Uh, the very God who led your people out of Egypt through moments. I, I am the commander of the Lord's army. And so you see this, this incredible uh, just situation where God inserts this, the commander of his army right at this point in time to again encourage Joshua that, hey, go forward, this land is yours. The Lord has given you this land. Once again, we see this, this contrast being set up, the weakness of Joshua's army over and against the strength of Yahweh's army. And this must have been staggering to him. In fact, consider his response. He falls down and worships him. What does the Lord say to my servant? What, what would you have me do? Joshua doesn't say, well, no, no, wait a minute. Moses made me the commander. Have you, you know, have you conferred with Moses? No, he just, he just acknowledges that, that this man in front of him has the trump card, so to speak, on him. Bows down. He immediately prostrates himself. He takes the position of an inferior to a superior. And notice, this is very important, I think, to understanding the identity of this man. Notice the man at this point does not correct Joshua, but rather receives his worship. You know, we have instances throughout the Bible where an angel might appear to a man, and, and as the man bows down to worship him, we think of John in, in the Revelation where he bows down to worship an angel and the angel immediately says, get up, get up, don't worship me. You know, it corrects him. But in this case, this man receives worship. And I believe this gives us a clue that he's not talking about any man. He's not talking about an angel here. I believe this is a pre-incarnate manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ because he receives the worship from Joshua. And if that wasn't uh, proof enough, we see what he says to Joshua. Take your sandal off your foot for the place where you stand is holy. And that ought to remind us of what? Well, it ought to remind us of what God through the burning bush said to Moses back in Exodus chapter three. 
uh, as, a, as a miracle of sorts, where this bush was on fire but not burning up, and it gave Moses the encouragement, part of the encouragement he needed to then lead his people out of Egypt by means of God's plagues. And so he says, take off your, your sandal. Not only is this man a commander, but he is God Almighty, is the Lord Jesus Christ, I believe. And so Joshua was to take off his sandal because he was standing on holy ground. In fact, the same God who called Moses from the burning bush to lead Israel out of Egypt is now the same God leading Joshua into the land and giving them the promise that he had made years before in the Abrahamic covenant. That was today. That all starts today. That land was theirs. And so we see this build up to Joshua chapter six. And now we get into the actual conquest of Jericho. And one of the things we see about Jericho in verse one is it says this, now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And so, you know, one of the things that, that we see is that the people of Jericho were frightened. They were absolutely demoralized. You know, Rahab had kind of hinted at that or, or really expressly, excuse me, stated it in chapter two. Um, but you know what? They became even more frightened and demoralized when God had brought the nation across the Jordan River on dry ground. They, they just had no spirit. Jo- Joshua 5.1 tells us left within them. They were completely demoralized. And so you can imagine a, a, a city recognizing impending doom, a city that was extremely fortified. And you know what? They said, lock the doors we're going to just hole up and, and hope that the Israelites lose interest. We know that we're safe in here. They can't get to us in here. And so we're going to wait them out. And maybe they'll get bored and go somewhere else and we can stay alive. And that was kind of their strategy. And it was because they were so fortified that they felt like they could wait out the Israelites. Now, one of the things that we learn about their fortification system, it was like nothing else that had ever been created before. I've got a cut shot that I'm, I'm pulling up on the screen right now of what they believe that fortified city of Jericho looked like. And um, you'll see here very clearly, and, and I'm going to try to bring up a laser pointer here to point out, but you'll see here very, very clearly um, that this retaining wall down here, uh, you can see the, the men on the ground giving you, try to give you perspective, but there was a retaining wall built at the base of the city that was about 12 to 15 feet tall. And on top of that, there was a mud brick wall that was six feet wide and, and also a, another 20 feet tall from that point. And then you have this large embankment that moved its way to an upper wall up here. And that was a similar mud brick wall as we have down at the bottom of that embankment. And when you went to the top of that top wall up there, you were standing 46 feet above ground level. And so you can imagine from the perspective of a normal human situation, even walking around that city exposed you to great danger because people could be standing on the other side of the wall, shooting arrows at you, uh, throwing things over to smash you, maybe large rocks, and you really couldn't get to them in time to save you. And so this gives us a perspective of what was going on in the minds of the people of Jericho. They thought they were going to be completely safe. 
And so as a, a result of their extremely fortified position, the people of Jericho were well prepared for a siege. The other thing we learn about the history of Jericho is not only did they have this fortified city, but they had a spring of water that, that flowed right through the city. So they had a water source that could have sustained them. We also know that the harvest uh, in this area had just been gathered because we know that history tells us that dirt, when the Jordan River flooded, that was typically harvest season. So they had just probably gathered the harvest, had an abundant supply of food. And so from a, from a logistical perspective, this is a city when they close their gates, hold up, they could outlast a siege almost two to three years, historians believe. So they were, they were getting set up to defend themselves. Now, according to man's strength and man's ingenuity, there was absolutely nothing the Israelites could have done but wait them out. That's the type of situation they were facing, an impossible situation. But thankfully, (laughs) that's man's perspective. Thankfully, the commander of Yahweh's army was not a man. He, He was the God man, Jesus Christ. He could accomplish things that Joshua, a seasoned warrior, could never accomplish. He could accomplish things that that millions of Israelites could not accomplish in him, in him alone. And so we're going to see again this contrast between Joshua and the Israelites' weakness and the Lord's strength. And it's just going to come clear in our story. In fact, when we move into verse two, it's, it's kind of an interesting way that the Lord speaks to Joshua here. And in verse two, uh, we believe that the commander of the Lord's army is still with Joshua and he's now he's giving him instructions. Uh, what's really ironic though, is before he tells him what to do, he already tells him the outcome. He, he as, a, as an athletic term, he calls his shot before it happens. And we notice that in verse two, it says, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. So he tells him the outcome before he even gives him the instructions on how he wants to do it. And you know, it's actually kind of funny how he does it as well. He says, see, see, I have given Jericho into your hand. And it's just, it's interesting. You can imagine Joshua's response. Uh, yeah, I see, I see his city that's impenetrable. I see uh, a, a huge wall and embankment, another wall on top of that. I, I see that the doors have been shut and I see that they've got a, a spring going through the city and they've got all this food. I, what do you want me to see? What exactly am I looking at? And what he was supposed to be looking at, I believe, is the next statement. I have given Jericho into your hand. He was to see the word of God. He was to see the promise of God. He was to take his focus off of everything that might distract him and just put his focus on God's word and God's promise. God had said, I'm giving this into your hand. Now, how God was going to do that, I don't think Joshua knew. In fact, he was probably blown away by how all this was going to go down. But what he needed to see was that God was giving him the land. He was giving him Jericho and he needed to believe and trust in that. And so as he goes through the battle plan, and we won't read through this, but we'll make some notes. This battle plan is unconventional. In fact, that's an understatement. It, it, was, it is probably the most unconventional battle plan of all time. In fact, if, if, a, if a student at West Point came up with a battle plan like this in one of his assignments, they'd probably kick him out of school. This is a ridiculous battle plan when it comes to man's perspective. And see, again, sometimes God does things certain ways so that only he 
can get the glory. And this is definitely one of those plans. And the plan is this, very simple. Walk around the city once a day for six days and then come back to the camp and hang out. Then on the seventh day, walk around the city seven times, blow a long blow of the trumpet, yell, and the walls will come down and you go in and and take the city. Sounds like a great plan. Very odd plan. No battering rams, no, no sneaking into underground waterways, no climbing over walls at night, nothing like that. No sneaking into the city, no pretending to be a person of Jericho trying to get in through the, nothing like that. Just walk around the city. Do it the way that you're instructed to do it. And so we get the details of the plan. Some of the other details that come out, verses two through five, it, all the men of war would march around the city. Again, they, they think that the city of Jericho covered about eight to nine acres at this time. So it probably took them less than 30 minutes to march all the way around it once. This was not heavy work. This was a, not a difficult thing to do. They just went out, took their lap, and then came back to the camp each of the first six days. The other thing we see is that there would be priests bearing the ark, and then on top of those priests, there would be another seven priests walking around with horns. And those, those priests with the horns would be blowing those horns as they marched around the city every day. But on the seventh day, what we see a little bit different is they were to blow the trumpets and give a long blast. That would be the deal after the seventh Lap. And then when that happened, we were told the people would need to shout and then the city walls would fall down and then they would go up and destroy Jericho and its inhabitants. So again, very odd plan. Um, very, one of those things that was just kind of like, what is, what is this? Okay, we'll try it type thing. But you know, what's really fascinating about this whole story is we've just spent you know, almost four books of the Bible, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, just, just hanging Israel, the people of Israel up like a punching bag. Because every time we turn around in one of those stories, we see how those people would not trust the Lord. We see how those people would grumble. We see how those people would complain, how they would bellyache about too much food. And then they got the food they wanted, and then they'd bellyache about that, and then they'd bellyache about water, and then they'd bellyache about being in the wilderness, and then they'd say, let's go back to Egypt. We had it so much better as slaves, and they, they would com- gripe and complain about so many things, and we just, in those four books, it's like we got Israel up on a punching bag. We just, we point back to them and say, what in the world were these guys thinking? Well, you know what? Here is a great example of the entire nation walking by faith. Because what's really interesting is when we get to chapter, or when we get to verse six, Joshua passes along the instructions. But you know what? Uh, as best I can tell from the text, he only passed along the instructions for one day at a time. That's incredible. Because when you think about what he's saying here, is he's giving them even in their minds, a ridiculous plan. Hey guys, let's just march around the city. You know, and day one might've might have made sense, you know, from a human perspective. Yeah, let's get a lay of the land. Let's see if they've got any places where maybe we can attack. Let's go march all the way around the city and let's see if there's a weak spot. Let's kind of formulate a plan. So day one, that might even have made sense. But day two and day three 
and day four, they might have been like, what in the world are we doing? This is ridiculous. This is the dumbest. Are we ever going to try to attack this city? In fact, why are we wasting our time walking around the city? We could be building a battering ram out of these trees. We could be building, we could be doing things that actually make sense. And yet the scripture doesn't record that anybody had that thought, that anybody issued a complaint. Joshua woke up each morning, gave them the instruction. They went out and did it and they came back home. And then they waited to the next day. And that morning too, they got further instructions. This was, as I said earlier, an incredible example of faith. This is the people trusting the leader, finally, right? Trusting the leader that God had given them. They, many times in the past, the, the generation that died in the wilderness, that was an issue. They couldn't trust Moses. They, in fact, there, were, there was that time, remember, they tried to replace Moses. Say, who do you think you are making yourself the leader? Remember, God used that great example of Aaron's rod budding to again reconfirm that he had indeed called Moses and Aaron as the leaders. But the people had a problem with that. But you know what? This group didn't. They seemed to have responded to Joshua's leadership. They seemed to have responded to God's word through Joshua. In fact, we learn from Hebrews 11.30 that this group is mentioned in the hall of faith. This, this very group, and in Hebrews 11.30, it says this, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And you know, as one commentator said, and I would agree with him, that the the thermometer of faith has never risen this high in Israel before this time or after this time. This is an amazing unity in, in millions of Israelites at this point in their history, having seen specifically these ways that God has brought them to this point. And now they are walking by faith and whatever God says they're responding to. And what a beautiful picture and understanding of the Israelites recognizing their weaknesses in this situation and recognizing God's strength. And even though God is asking them to do something that's very unorthodox, they in their mind is saying, you know what? What God says is better than any strategy I can come up with. And man, may that just be a repeated thought even in our age, that God's strategy and God's methods and God's resources are always better than what we can come up with on ourselves. And the people were there at this point. You know, consider also Joshua's potential here for fear. You know, this was typically when you attacked a fortified city, you did not get close enough where the inhabitants from the city could actually rain stuff down on top of you like arrows and rocks and, and stones and other types of things because it was very dangerous. And so Joshua's got this in his mind too. Man, I'm, I'm asking my entire army to go out there and march around the city, putting them in a predicament every single day. But you know what? The Lord, uh, the Lord and the commander of the Lord's army told me to do this. And so I'm going to trust him to take care of this entire nation. Consider also the view from inside the wall. You know, picture for a moment how the sequestered people of Jericho might have felt watching this. You know, as, a, as an array of men start approaching the city, you know, they're getting ready for an attack. And then they see a group of priests in the middle of them. That's weird. They're, they're carrying a golden box. 
which from a pagan perspective, they probably thought, oh, that's their God. That, that box right there, that's their God. So they're getting a little bit nervous because they're, again, their hearts have been melted. How, how is their God going to give this city to them? They see this group approaching, but instead of going in an effort to get into their city, they just start walking around the city. They, they, they take a lap of the city. They probably think, okay, well, maybe they're just looking for a way in, but we know that, that our wall's tight. We know that we've got no weak spots. So I think we're good. And the whole time, what's really odd about this march is all the soldiers are quiet, but the priests are blowing horns. Okay, that's weird, but we don't really know what to do about that. Then after one lap, uh, the people inside the wall see that the nation of Israel, these people marching around the city, they return to the plains to camp out for one night. Maybe they even thought the first night, wow, great. They're, they're discouraged. They see they can't get in through our walls. They see that we're, we're so fortified. Hopefully they'll be leaving soon. But then they did it again the next day. And they peeled off and went and camped back out. And then they did it the next day. And then they did it the next day. In fact, they did it six days total. One lap around the city, army of men, priests in the middle, holding this golden box, blowing these horns. And then they go back to their camp for the night. They must be thinking to themselves, what is going on? You know, and I can't help but think, knowing the character of God, that that God was giving in this six-day march, was also giving, uh, I think it was a faith-building time for the nation of Israel, but I think he was also giving the people of Jericho an opportunity to cry out for his mercy, to to surrender themselves. We don't we don't know. But that would not be unlikely of God and his character to give this city of pagans. Obviously, Rahab had responded to him. Rahab was going to be spared, her and her family. But what about the rest of the city? There was an opportunity here for them to to change their mind and to trust in the God of Israel. And obviously, we know from the story that they didn't. But it may have been an opportunity for them uh, to cry out for the Lord's mercy. Now, Joshua is going to give some additional instructions when we get to day seven. Let's read verses 15 through 19. But it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and marched around the city seven times in the same manner. On that day only, they marched around the city seven times. And the seventh time it happened when the priests blew the trumpets that Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Now the city shall be doomed by the Lord to destruction It and all who are in it, only Rahab the harlot shall live. She and all who are with her in the house because she hid the messengers that we sent. And you, by all means, abstain from the accursed things, lest you become accursed when you take of the accursed things and make the camp of Israel a curse and trouble it. But all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are consecrated to the Lord. They shall come into the treasury of the Lord. And so we see the first additional instruction that Joshua gives on the seventh day is, is when the priests blew their trumpets, the men were to shout for the Lord had given them the city. Second thing, everyone in the city was to be destroyed except Rahab the harlot and whoever was in her home. And then third, they were to abstain from the accursed things. And then they were to bring all of the valuables, silver, gold, vessels of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord. And it really brings up a a topic that I think is 
would be beneficial to look at a little bit more closely. And it's this idea of, of accursed things. And we talked a little bit about this last week with Rahab, but we're going to kind of develop this a little bit more because the, the term accursed things translates the Hebrew noun harem and become accursed, or it's translated elsewhere, utterly destroy, translates the Hebrew word haram. Both have significant meaning. And so it's very important to, to see this, I think, as we go into uh, this Canaanite conquest. It's very important to understand these things. The accursed things, harem, refer to consecrated possessions. Okay, consecrated just means you set them apart for special use. And so they were oftentimes, this word was used as things devoted to the Lord. Now, one of the things that we see uh, in the history of the use of this word is oftentimes it meant that things were devoted to the Lord in such a way that the things were destroyed to prevent any further human use. In other words, they were so set apart that, that people would set them apart and then destroy them so that no humans could get any use out of those things ever again. Or another use of this word is, uh, in, which is in this case right here, is that these articles would be, simply be devoted to the Lord for the use of the worship of the Lord. And that's it. They could never be used for anything else. What's really ironic about that is we see uh, when we get all the way to Daniel in the Babylonian kingdom, what, why does the Babylonian kingdom, what's the icing on the cake? Well, they take articles that had been dedicated to the worship of the Lord and use them in common use. And they were punished for that. They lost uh, their empire that very night to the Medo-Persians. But going back to this, when we talk about accursed things here, this is what he's talking about, that these articles were to be solely dedicated to the Lord for his treasury and for his worship. Again, the verb form, become accursed, describes this verbal action of devoting something to God, which once given must then be destroyed so there will be no human use made of it. And this word, this verb form of this word is used 14 times in Joshua in describing the Canaanite conquest. Uh, And so the idea is that as the Israelites go in, they are devoting the people of the Canaanites to the Lord and thus they can never be used again for human use. Because typically when people conquered uh, inhabitants of cities and they took over cities, they would oftentimes keep the inhabitants as slaves or servants. And in this case, the Lord did not want that to happen. And so they were devoted to the Lord and they were to be uh, destroyed uh, in, this, in this concept of harem. And so the verb is also the same word that's used um, back in Deuteronomy 3.6, describing the destruction of Sihon and Og. Rahab heard the story, and this is why we brought it out last week. She actually used this word, understanding that she had really paid attention to people giving her the story that, that the people of Sihon and Og had been devoted to the Lord, but destroyed so that they could get no further human use out of those people. And so it's interesting then that when we talk about these words, harem and haram, what it indicates is that the Canaanite conquest from the mind of the Israelites and from the mind of God was just as much an act of worship as going to the tabernacle and offering sacrifices. Now, that may be hard for us to wrap our mind around, honestly. But one of the things that the Lord knew about the Canaanite people, we'll talk a little bit more about this in a second, but one of the things that he knew about the Canaanite people is if they stayed around 
and they were not eliminated, that they would cause many trials and temptations for his people in terms of the worship. In fact, when we look at Deuteronomy 20, verses 17 and 18, we read this. But you shall utterly destroy them. This is the Lord's instructions. The Hittite, the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Just as the Lord your God has commanded you, notice this next phrase, lest, if you don't do this, they will teach you to do according to all their abominations, which they have done for their gods, and you sin against the Lord your God. The Lord knew that at this point in their history, they could not handle having these polytheistic pagans around because the influence would be too great for them at this point to overcome. And so he wants them dedicated or devoted to him through destruction. And so that brings up a difficult concept that many times people will, will mention as a reason that they have a trouble with the Bible. And it's not an easy topic. Um, you know, they call it Canaanite genocide, although I don't, I'm not sure that's the best description for it, but that's the, uh, a summary description of it. And, and, and we notice, if we're being honest here, when we get to verse um, 20 through 27, we notice that everything happened exactly the way the Lord said it would. So the Israelites went into the city. They utterly destroyed every living thing. And not to sugarcoat this at all, um, this may seem harsh to some. They, they destroyed every living thing. But one of the things we've got to recognize when we get to this point in history and context is that this people in the promised land, these Canaanites and the Hittites and all the ites that we just read about, they were polytheistic, evil, child-sacrificing pagans. And they, they pushed the extremes of evil to the limit. And God was now using the nation of Israel to judge them for their sin. In fact, the book of Leviticus tells us that the Canaanites were involved in many evil sins, including child sacrifice, homosexuality, bestiality, and, and many others. In fact, the Canaanites were involved in such gross perversity that the land in Leviticus 18 is depicted as being on the verge of vomiting them out. That's the imagery that the Lord uses to describe their evilness. But it begs the question, and I know many of us uh, have thought about this or have considered it or maybe thinking now, but why kill the children? That's a, that's a great question. That's a hard question. I don't pretend to have uh, the corner on that answer, but I will take a, an attempt at answering it. Um, it I'm sure it will, will lack in, in many ways. But, you know, the children of the Canaanites would have most likely grown up and imitated their parents. And so in the very next generation, had they spared the children, the land would have been filled with the same types of people, which would have been a problem for the nation of Israel. That would have caused uh, them to be, uh, again, drawn away by this pagan influence. You might also say in some senses that the killing of the children was merciful because their, their life was taken from them before they could fully get to an age where they would reject uh, the God of Israel and in this sense, many, although losing their life at a young age, were saved for eternity. And so you could view it from that perspective uh, as well. But one of the things Joshua does in the middle of the battle is he singles out Rahab. He says, hey, let's remember this lady that took care of our spies. 
And so he turns his attention to her now and getting her family out of the city according to the promise. And what we learn in this passage is that Rahab is not only delivered, but then she dwelled in Israel to this day. That's what verse uh, 25 tells us, is that she dwelt in Israel even to the day of the writing of this book. And we know from Scripture, uh, we know from the the, uh, genealogy given in Matthew chapter 1, that she ended up marrying an Israelite named Salmon. We know that they had a son. His name was Boaz. You might recognize Boaz's name because he was the one who married Ruth in the book of Ruth. He was her kinsman redeemer. He was an honorable man. And then from there, Boaz and Ruth gave birth to a son named Obed, who begot Jesse, and then Jesse begot King David. And so as we look at Rahab the harlot, she uh, was King David's great-great-grandmother, and thus we find her in the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's just kind of a, uh, an interesting thought to consider that this, this Gentile woman who obviously had not lived a perfect life but responded by faith in the Lord was, was given the great honor of being in the, the physical lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. What, a, what an honor. And so they get Rahab out of there according to the promise. And then we see that as we close out this story um, in verse uh, 27, uh, 26, and Joshua charged him at this time saying, cursed be the man before the Lord who rises up and builds this city, Jericho. He shall lay its foundations with its firstborn and with his youngest, he shall set up its gates. Verse 27, so the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout all the country. And so again, this, this is a victory that was a miraculous victory. Anybody that knew the city of Jericho would have known this was an impossible task. And yet we see as they march around the walls, the walls just fall down and they march right in and destroy and take the city. And so Joshua, from the perspective of everybody else in the land, was getting, was getting the credit. He was the leader of the army, the human leader. And so now, as they come, as God really sets them up, now, now they're the big, now they're the big shots in the land. They're the, they're the strong army of Israel. They're known as being powerful. Everything God is doing is to establish in their enemies thinking fear and, and dread of this coming invading army. And so every city they came to, whatever enemy they faced, would all know who Joshua was and knew what the Lord was accomplishing through him. And so, and so God established him and gave him great favor. And, and people had fear of Joshua knowing what the Lord had been accomplishing through him. And so again, his fame and success was directly tied to walking with the Lord. Again, we see this all the way back in Joshua chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. And let's just read this. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night that you may observe to do all according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Have I not commanded you be strong and of good courage? Do not be afraid nor be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go, wherever you go. And was the Lord his God with him in the battle of Jericho? Very much so. Gave him the battle plan and showed him exactly what he wanted to accomplish in and through Joshua in the Israelite army. And so what are some applications for us? Well, I think it's, it's really important just to draw a couple of ap- applications here. And that is, uh, number one, when we recognize our weakness, 
that whole recognition is caused to design us to reach out for God's strength. You know, many believers, they recognize weakness in their life and immediately their response is, well, I got to improve myself in that area. I got to get stronger in that area. And, and, and God's revelation of your weakness to you is not so that you would get stronger in that area, but that you would reach out by faith and rely upon his strength. It's not to get stronger, it's to trust in the Lord's strength. Oftentimes, another response that believers have when they recognize weakness in their life is they'll try to cover it up. They, they don't want anybody else to see the weakness. And so they do a, a great job of, of hiding and covering and, and pushing it off to the side so that nobody else can see it. That's not the goal of, of seeing your weakness either. God's goal in revealing your weakness to you is so that you might take that and springboard it into the very need and desire that you need to have, the awareness that we need to have that the only time that we can live a life of strength is when we're relying upon God and his resources. This is why the New Testament uh, writers, Paul especially coined uh, his own word, uh, which was to be strengthened, but it was be strengthened from within. It was in strength and it is something that only the Lord can do. But we will only reach out to him by faith when we have a recognition of our weakness. Again, that is what the design of weakness is, is, is to show us that we need God's strength. And you know, this is true of each one of us that God will accomplish his greatest feats in your life, not when you feel the strongest, but when you're relying upon his strength. You know, many believers, they, they hate days that they feel weak. They hate days that they feel inadequate. They, they despise those days. And yet those are the very days where God can accomplish incredible feats in and through our life if we will simply learn to rely upon and take advantage of his strength. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you uh, and praise you for this incredible story revealing your power uh, in weakness, in human weakness, and to see what you can accomplish through human beings who simply trust you and your methods and your strategies instead of their own. May that just be an encouragement uh, to each one of us today. I know that we're all facing different things in our life and uh, we always bring and, and house hurts internally that maybe we're not even always aware of. We, we house uh, fears of inadequacy um, that oftentimes don't even come to the surface, but uh, Lord, when they do, may they be springboards for us to uh, think about you, to rely upon you and your strength. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.